Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. In today's episode, I have a chat to Matthew Champion, who's an archaeologist, historian, heritage consultant, and most importantly, a medieval graffiti expert. Matt is also the author of a really great book that I've finished reading recently called Medieval Graffiti, The Lost Voices of England's Churches. He also started the Norfolk Medieval Graffiti Survey in 2010. This was the first large-scale survey of medieval graffiti inscriptions in the UK. Now, before we get into today's episode, I'll give you the rundown of some of the things we chat about. So firstly, we start with how Matt got into researching medieval graffiti and how he began the Norfolk Graffiti Survey. When people began to see graffiti as a form of vandalism and why for medieval people it was a completely normal way of life. How medieval graffiti helps us to relate to the people of the past. The kinds of tools they use to create the graffiti. We then get into the different types of ritualistic graffiti and what they mean, as well as common types of charms and curses. And then we finish up with some of Matt's favourite graffiti. So we'll crack on with the episode now and I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, now the first thing I am going to ask you, I know you've been asked a million times because I did do like a little bit of snooping before to see you oh, know, what, what podcast have you done. You know, I don't want to overlap, but I kind of have to overlap with this question just to set the scene for people. So Yeah, absolutely. It has to be. Why graffiti? How did you get into that area of research and what led you to begin the project? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a slightly unusual area to study, I suppose. Um, well, it didn't start with graffiti. Um, you know, it actually started with uh, a long time beforehand with medieval wall paintings. Um, the, you know, one of my first um, passions, as it were, was, you know, studying medieval churches. And um, medieval wall paintings, of course, in the UK are, you know, incredibly important and some fantastic works of art. And I ended up um, working as the editor on a, uh, a new book on medieval wall paintings. Um, so I spent three years um, really looking in depth. And that really led to me um, uh, running a uh, another project um, conserving medieval wall paintings, which was over um, a lovely church on the Norfolk Suffolk border uh, in a place called Lakenheath. The church has got at least six different schemes of wall paintings in there, dating all the way back from about 1200 to um, about 1600. So, you know, you've got this fantastic array across a long period of time. And it was whilst I was looking at the wall paintings, um, I realised that actually um, a lot of these surfaces also had graffiti on them and um, the graffiti in some cases you were looking at text um, in particular it was clearly sort of pre-reformation in origin and so wanting to know a bit more about this I, yeah first thing I did was hit the libraries and I realized there was only one real book uh, which had been published on the subject um, which was by a woman called Violet Pritchard um, published uh, back in 1967 Really, she had only looked at the churches around kind of the Cambridge area. So the ones I was looking for and the information I was looking for, it simply wasn't available. It seemed that no one had really taken much of an interest. Uh, so it really kind of went from there. Um, and I started looking at other churches, um, literally kind of, you know, picking a few at random and, um, you know, went in to see if I, you know, I, could, I could see other graffiti on the walls. And I was um, fairly lucky in the first church I picked, which was uh, Litcham. Uh, All Saints Litcham in the middle of um, middle of Norfolk, 
And um, I wandered in there with the church warden, um, an old friend of mine called Danny, and some torches. And Danny was like, so, you know, what are you after? What are you looking for? And uh, I said, well, I just want to see if there's, you know, any graffiti here. And Danny goes, oh, no, 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 you won't get that sort of thing in our church. And um, then Danny and I both started shining torches across the wall. And, you know, literally we're running the, the light obliquely across the surface. So it kind of highlights anything that's there. And we realized that there were literally hundreds of these inscriptions um, all in the stonework. And um, unless you were using, you know, particular types of lighting, you just couldn't see them. So you turn the light off and they disappeared again. So Danny, who'd been church warden there for you know over a decade, um, he'd been walking past these, as had everyone else, without realizing they were there. So it kind of went from there. Mm. Um, you know, we began to realize that graffiti, rather than being an you know, early graffiti, rather than being a rarity, it was actually pretty commonplace. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, like, what actually led me to read your book was in, I went to Exeter Cathedral a while back, and on, I guess it was a, a bishop Wonderful or, place. you know, like one of those sort of high up people's graves, and it had all graffiti on it. <laughs> we were taken aback. We were like, what? Because we thought, you know, gorgeous church, cathedral, how could it be, you know, vandalized and everything? And, and then I, I kind of did a bit of Googling and that's how I came across your book. And I obviously came to realize that graffiti, this wasn't modern graffiti, this was old graffiti and it was uh, very accepted, you know, at the time. And obviously today's attitudes, we see it as vandalism. So, you know. That, it, is, it is very, very strange, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like when did that happen? You know, like when did we start to see that as vandalism? You well, know, it's, it... it's really a relatively um, modern phenomenon. You know, today we see it as vandalism. We see it as destructive. Um, you know, we see it as antisocial. But that really doesn't, um, you know, start to happen until kind of the middle of the 19th century. Prior to then, it seems that, you know, graffiti was being done by just about everyone from, you know, all classes of society. And they had absolutely no qualms in, um, you know, going out and leaving, you know, literally making their mark on just about any possible surface. Um, and then, you know, in 1850, you know, that kind of starts to change. And um, oddly enough, it coincides with um, the introduction of the word graffiti. You know, the term graffiti, well, the, the term graffiti is a relatively modern one. It's only really invented um, in, a, in the middle of the 19th century. And I'm pleased to say it was invented by archaeologists. And they invented the word to describe um, the informal inscriptions that they were coming across at some of the Roman sites like Pompeii and Herculaneum. When they first invented the term, um, it had no negative connotations whatsoever. It just kind of meant informal writing. Um, and it's really since that point that it's it's gradually shifted to be seen, um, you know, as this negative thing. Yeah. But having said that, it's never been that straightforward because there's always been people who, you know, um, who don't see it as a destructive process. You know, it's an argument that still carries on today. Um, you know, people see, you know, where does graffiti stop? Where does street art begin? You know, uh, it appears that if someone comes along and writes, um, you know, Black Lives Matter on a, um, you know, a statue of Churchill, um, everyone gets upset. Um, if they discover um, a, you know, a medieval inscription on, um, you know, 
the tomb of Edward III, um, everyone thinks, wow, what an amazing discovery. So it's, it's, there's, there's a real kind of graffiti paradox, um, but there always has been. But we know when we've got written references, um, you know, going right the way back into the Middle Ages that show you that graffiti was, um, you know, really kind of accepted and acceptable. You know, I think my favourite is actually um, from the Maltese island of Gozo, um, goes back to the late 15th century. And there's a cleric who finds himself um, in court and um, he's accused of um, sexually harassing one of the parishioners. He claims, his defence is wonderful, he claims that in the, the darkness of the church it was a case of mistaken identity. And uh, he didn't realise it, it was this woman, but he thought, he thought it was a prostitute of his acquaintance. Oh, and it's yeah, kind of like oh, she was just yeah. hanging around waiting for him. Really. Yeah, and that makes it perfectly <laughs> okay then, doesn't it? Um, but actually, witnesses were brought. Um, a couple of witnesses were brought to court, and they said that he, um, they had seen graffiti written on the wall of the church um, by this guy, Bisconis, and that the graffiti detailed exactly what he would like to do to this woman. Big mistake. And they claimed, that, <laughs> yeah, big mistake. Never put it in writing. Yeah. Um, and the, um, they claim they recognised it because they recognised his handwriting. You know, he was actually, um, he was found guilty and he spent uh, two years in prison in chains as a result. Um, but the fascinating part of it is, that, you know, with the, the judge and the judgment, it makes it very clear that his graffiti was, you know, were only a couple of examples amongst many, many others there. And that the judge and, you know, the jury had absolutely no problem with the concept of graffiti. It was just the content that they really had issue with. Um, and as I say, you know, he spent two years in prison as a result. And, you know, we've got other written references as well, going all the way back to the 12th century, where we have, you know, religious people uh, actually deliberately leaving marks on their um, on their churches and their place of worship. Um, and again, absolutely no negative connotations whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's, you know, really interesting the way that we perceive it now compared to then because it was just it just wasn't a big deal then at all and now we kind of can't fathom it to think you'd be writing you know destructive things on this magnificent well, building it's, yeah it's, it's about how our perceptions of those buildings have changed as well so we see them now very much as kind of historical monuments um you know if you excuse the the phrase they're kind of set in stone um but <laughs> yeah. you know during the middle ages in particular these were these these buildings and these wall surfaces and these spaces they were fluid um you know they were always changing um you know mm -hmm. if we think about the average medieval church today we, we kind of see it as a whole um but you have to remember that the the changes taking place throughout the middle ages and into the reformation um were absolutely massive so they were seeing mm -hmm. changes in wall paintings they were changing in decoration changing in layout um you know things like church pews everyone thinks of churches full of pews these days but even that's a relatively late intervention you know pews don't start getting added to churches until really kind of into the 15th century as a regular thing so prior to that it was a big open space but today churches are seen as i say as you know kind of whitewashed and empty and um kind of you know big white spaces but of course during the middle ages it was a riot of color um, every church, virtually without exception, was covered in sort of, you know, pigment. Um, you had stained glass. You know, it would have been a very, very different experience, but it would have been an experience that also changed over time. And I think that's what we find difficult because now we kind of hold them up and we, we treasure them and say, oh, this has to be, you know, kept as it is. Um, and, you know, for them, um, we know that they were marking, um, not just inscribing into the walls of the church, but also just writing messages on there, doodling. There's a wonderful advert 
I think it's a late 16th century advert for a, a guy who's selling wax crayons. And um, this advert, um, you know, said it extols the wonders of these wax crayons. And it turns around and it says, um, really good for writing in churches or really good for writing on walls. So, you know, these, these are also... These are the parish notice boards. You know, this is where people are leaving their messages. Um, you know, it's not all religious. It's not all doodling. Um, you know, it's it's messaging. It's um, yeah. you know, in some places it's related to the building. In some places, it's you know, it's it's leaving your record, leaving your mark on the wall. I have to say, for me, I think medieval graffiti makes medieval people a lot more relatable because you feel like they're so far removed from you, and that they lived in some, you know unimaginable world and I know it was but at the same time it's like here's their mark they did graffiti on the wall they were just a regular person kind well, of well that is the thing about graffiti is it suddenly gives you an insight yeah. into real people um, I think that's been the real eye-opener um, on this whole project over the last decade um, is um, you know just how it's kind of hit the zeitgeist um, with the general public and I think it goes back to this idea of you know our, our big houses and our big churches and our cathedrals being seen as kind of monuments and we've taken, I think over the last century or so, in many cases, we've taken the people away. They have become, you know, the guidebook will tell you about the stained glass. It'll tell you about the carved pews. It'll tell, tell you about the misericords and the architecture. But these places were, you know, they, they were all about people. Um, it was people who paid for them. It was people who built them. It was people who worshipped them. It was people who met in them. Mm. And the graffiti allows you a kind of one-to-one with those individuals. Um, and you have to remember that a lot of those individuals, um, you know, the graffiti may be the only mark they've left on this planet. Um, you know, if they don't, yeah, if they don't turn up in the written records, if they don't turn up, you know, in the, the manor court rolls or court cases or leave a will, there's no grave marker for them. So uh, in many cases, you know, the graffiti on the wall may be literally the only mark they left on this world. And so that, I think, you know, people relate to people. And I think that's what's really, you know, come shining through in this project is, um, you know, just mm-hmm. how how needy people are and how people need um, to, you know, um, relate to these people of the past. It makes them real. And, you know, even today, if I go into a church that I haven't been into before or, you know, and I'm shining the light across a wall and I come across, um, you know, some graffiti or some text, you know, there is still that moment where this this hasn't been seen um, probably in 500 years. And you do get that you know moment when the hairs on the back of your neck come up. When I was working down in uh, Winchelsea um, for the National Trust, we were looking in an undercroft, um, which had a plaster wall, medieval plaster wall, um, which had been absolutely covered in images of ships. Um, And this had been cut into the wet plaster, so literally just after the plaster had been applied. But for me, the most magical moment was realising that right in the middle of this plaster, someone had put their finger, and there was their fingerprint just right in this plaster and you could literally put your finger exactly where theirs had been many many centuries ago and probably were the first one to have done that for you know five centuries it makes it real yeah no moments like that I can imagine would be amazing and I have to say like after reading your book I'm actually really excited to go back to churches and cathedrals and look around because I know what the graffiti means now as well because um on the bishop's one he had a lot of the v you know the double v symbol and a couple of dates written and I I can't remember the others but it was covered in it and obviously at the time I thought to myself wow they must have hated this guy like (laughs) (laughs) all over his but I know I, I know now that that means 
you know it's a symbol of protection so it was probably oh, and, a good yeah. thing that they were they were they drawing on his... as well um you know they may have hated him as well you've got to remember <laughs> that um a lot of those particularly if you're looking at the tombs and stuff what you've got to remember is when we talk about this vv symbol um is that the uh, the letter w the capital letter w was also written as a kind of conjoined v um right through into the 18th and 19th century so a lot of those may in fact be initials um but you know you've still oh, got right. people you've still got people um you know making their mark um yeah the the most common set of initials you'll you'll ever see are a kind of jw um and i mean we've done massive statistical analysis on the uh, just the initials you're finding in the post-reformation period now um and people were um you know leaving their mark um you know just as initials all the way through from kind of the 15th 16th century all the way through till you know well kind of last week um so what we've been doing recently is looking at these and doing you know really large scale statistical analysis at places like rochester cathedral and uh, norwich cathedral and yeah even that's come up with some surprises as well because we've realized that with these initials, particularly the post-Reformation stuff, um, they're exactly matching uh, the name naming trends of the UK population over those over that period of time. So there's something strange about it in the fact is it's exactly matching the male naming traditions, not the female. So at least with the post-Reformation, yeah, this is a real surprise. We didn't expect to see this. Um, but at least with these post-Reformation inscriptions, we're, we're looking at them going, actually, it appears to be mainly the blokes. You know, this was a surprise. This wasn't what we expected to see. So, you know, whether that changes, um, you know, whether that's a change from the medieval um, or whether it's just that we, you know, we men are going out with a pen knife in their pocket or something like that and, you know, have the, the ability on them, you know, the tool on them to actually create this graffiti. We really don't know. But it's really quite striking. You know, we've looked at a lot of sites now and we're seeing exactly the same thing. So, you know, every with every passing year, we're learning new things about these inscriptions. Um, and, you know, your bishop's tomb in Exeter Cathedral, you know, I bet if you went back and looked at that again and started thinking about initials and the letters there, that you'd start to see exactly the same patterns. It's really striking. Yeah. I've got to say, like some of the pictures of animals and things, they're damn good. How did they do it? What did they do? Yeah. Well, you've got to remember, first of all, that we're only going to put the good ones in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So, uh, yeah. There's going to be an awful lot more bad ones out there. Um, you know, graffiti, the quality of the graffiti and the imagery, it's as kind of diverse as you can imagine. You get everything possible. Um, you know, you get your ritual protection marks, you get your religious and your devotional graffiti, you get your gossip, you get your names, you get your text. And within those, um, you get everything from the really, really amazing um, you know, to the absolutely appalling. Um, you know, there are one of the most popular images I have ever put out on social media was um, what appears to be a, a depiction of um, St. George and the Dragon. And it's mm -hmm. dreadful. Um, it's from Marsham Church in Norfolk, and it looks like a kind of this stick figure. And yeah, and I put it out on social media as something like, yeah, is this the worst depiction of St. George and the Dragon ever uh, on St. George's Day? And it just kind of went viral. It's been used for exhibitions. They've made T-shirts <laughs> of it. Um, you know, people love the, the kind of the crappy bits as well. Yeah. But you do get some amazing works of art. But it's all part of a cross-section. You know, imagine if you took a, a class of, you know, six-year-olds, um, gave them a whole bunch of crayons and a whole bunch of paper and said, go draw stuff. Then, you know, what they would come back with would be 
completely diverse. It would be everything you can possibly imagine. Some would be really good, and a lot of them would be really, you know, not not brilliant, shall we say. And that's exactly like the walls of our churches and our cathedrals. And it's not just the churches and the cathedrals. Now we've started looking. You know, the graffiti is everywhere. You know, uh, it finds you know, castles, our stately homes, you know, even our, you know, humble kind of medieval houses, all of those are absolutely covered in inscriptions. You know, where early fabric survives, chances are you will find markings on it. Um, you know, Juliet Fleming, who was working on graffiti, um, you know, a number of years ago, she describes it, you know, it's just another form of writing. Mm. It's essentially the only difference is the medium that is being written on. You know, you're writing on the fabric rather than on paper or, um, you know, or vellum. So, you know, you do get these cross sections. What are they doing it with? Um, well, that's kind of, um, there, there has been quite a lot of experimentation recently. And I mean, you know, some of this has really taken a, a you know, very scientific approach. So um, the conclusions we've reached, well, um, for a lot of these compass drawn designs, these these rosettes and, um, you know, things like that, um, they are using uh, either a pair of compasses or more commonly, they appear to be using uh, a big pair of shears, which, you know, ex- works exactly like a compass, um, but produces slightly different results. In the middle ages, just about everyone would also be carrying a, uh, a knife on them. Not, you know, not a, not a dagger or anything, just a small kind of eating knife, um, sort of, you know, pen knife kind of thing. You know, the experiments we're seeing suggest that that is absolutely you know, perfectly adequate for producing a lot of these inscriptions. Mm. Um, you know, some of the work is done by professionals, um, you know, master masons and people like that. Uh, some of it's done by the actual parish priests themselves, you know. This, this we can prove. Uh, some of them are done by just your common everyday Joe. Um, so you get this complete, you know, diverse mix. And the numbers are really quite phenomenal. So if you, you know, go back to talking about Litcham Church, um, first one we looked at, you know, we're talking about 300 plus inscriptions in that one church. Look yeah. at Norwich Cathedral. Um, you know, we spent a long time with some wonderful volunteers looking at, um, you know, looking at the graffiti on the ground floor only at Norwich Cathedral. And um, we recorded over 5,000 individual inscriptions just in that one building alone. Wow, God. It's crazy because I've been there as well and I literally never saw any of it. I guess I wasn't looking out. <laughs> um, once it. you start looking, um, they, they now do. Uh, Norwich has really taken um, the graffiti to heart. You know, when we began the survey there, they were kind of like, oh, you know, graffiti is just a naughty choir boys kind of thing. We don't talk about that. Um, and, uh, you know, now many years later, um, not only do they, you know, they put it in the guidebooks, they, they had an exhibition about the 25 treasures of the cathedral. Um, and graffiti was actually down as I think it was number 13, you know, a real treasure of the cathedral. The guides have special training to talk about the graffiti. And one of our volunteers, Jess, is actually kind of, um, she, she also volunteers now at the cathedral as their um, specialist kind of graffiti guide. So she runs tours on Heritage Open days and things like that. So, you know, we've, you may have not noticed it last time you went there, but if you go to Norwich Cathedral today, it's very, very hard to miss because someone will be talking about the graffiti. Um, and it's seen a real that. change. That, yeah, good. it's a change of attitude completely over 10 years. Yeah. You know, when I when I started doing this, people were like, why, why, why are you studying graffiti? You know, what's the point? Um, and these days you say, oh, I study medieval graffiti. And they go, oh, cool. Yeah, have you seen this? <laughs> the attitude's completely yeah. changed. Absolutely it has. I would totally love to go on a tour like that. I think that would bring a lot more people into the cathedral, like younger people, certainly. They, that's something they'd be into. They'd get in there for that. Yeah, they get graffiti, right? And so um, the wonderful thing about this project that we set up was that, you know, when you normally have um, or recruit volunteers for a heritage project, um, you know, they tend to come from a certain kind of older demographic. 
Mm. Um, and you do tend to have, you know, quite a few of the the retired types. But with this one, because it was about graffiti, um, we ended up getting a very, very dem- different demographic of volunteers. A lot of younger people, a lot of people in their 20s and 30s and kids in particular. Kids just get it. You know, they don't, you know, if you if you have a lot of the, the older people, particularly say, you know, we're talking about graffiti here. Um, there is still that automatic assumption in their mind that graffiti is vandalism, graffiti is bad. And that takes some doing um, to, you know, get, get around that. I've done hour long lectures where at the end of it, the first question you get is, oh, you know, um, why did people allow this vandalism? Um, you know, in their churches, and you kind of think, were you listening for the last hour? Um, you know, so it is, it is, yeah, it is. Um, the younger people just kind of get it, and it, it's a real different, a really different way to sort of interpret a building because you can stop talking about the architecture. You don't, you know, as I've said many, many times before. Um, you know, when you walk into a medieval church, everything around you that you see, you know, all the stained glass, all of the, um, you know, the fine monuments, all, all the, you know, heraldic brasses on the floor, all of those kind of relate, uh, relate to the, um, the elite, um, the top kind of five, ten percent of medieval society. The wonderful thing about the graffiti, though, is it can be done by anyone and, you know, everyone. And, and we can prove this, you know, it's done by everyone from the parish priest um, and the Lord of the Manor all the way down to kind of the lowliest peasant. And there aren't too many areas of kind of medieval studies where you get that entire cross-section. And that's what appeals to people. Suddenly, it really, you know, going back to, you know, the podcast, uh, it gives people a sense of place. Um, they begin to see these things differently and feel differently about these spaces because we're putting the people back into these buildings. Definitely. Um, just going back to the shears really quickly, when you said shears, do you literally mean like massive garden shears? They'd come in and like do some graffiti with them. Um, yeah, not quite garden shears. <laughs> Um, but yeah, because um, I'm just picturing them like with these huge shoes, <laughs> getting them out like during a church yeah, well, you, service. You can do really effective stuff with a strimmer as well, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, the, the shears they had were essentially it's a piece of iron which is forged into a U shape, and it has a blade at each end. So they're like a small pair of snips or shears. Oh, right. Um, okay, yeah. You can still buy them today. A lot of people use them for kind of embroidery or things like that. Now, in the Middle Ages, that was your common, um, you know, your common alternative to scissors. And um, a lot of people had them. So um, you'll see them in medieval manuscripts uh, hanging from people's belts. You'll see them hung up by the fireplace, which is, oddly enough, where we find a lot of our compass-drawn designs. We, um, You'd also find them in sort of barns and outbuildings, where their bigger versions are used to kind of shear sheep and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and oddly enough, when you look at the compass-drawn designs we see in our barns and our outbuildings, they tend to be bigger than those that we find in our houses, suggesting that they've been done with these larger shears as well. So, um, you know, it, it was a bit of a paradox when we first started doing this, because one of the most common designs we keep coming across are these compass-drawn designs. But mm-hmm. the one thing archaeology tells us is that actually compasses are really, really rare in the archaeological mm-hmm. record. So what we were looking for, we were we were looking for a tool that you know was a rare tool that was um, creating these massive, massive numbers of these compass drawn designs, and it just didn't work. So we had to look for an alternative, and um, 
it was, yeah, the alternative was kind of in the manuscripts. It was staring us in the face. And then once we started experimenting, and we did do a lot of experimentation with this, you know, we had reconstructions made, we got hold of original sort of, yeah, the right type of stone. And we realized that actually creating these really complex compass-drawn designs with a pair of shears was not only... Um, quick and easy it was actually slightly easier than using an actual pair of compasses or dividers because the arms were fixed so yeah you, you can do it really quickly really efficiently um you know a really nice kind of one of these six petal rosettes you can do one of those in about five minutes it's crazy because they look so like you wouldn't be able to do it that quickly they look really good some of them oh there's so many different um yeah there's so many different variations and some of them would have taken a long long time to do um you know they um you, you can look at them and you think we get everything from our basic compass drawn circle all the way through to these massive elaborate complex multiple designs that cover you know sort of um you know 30 40 centimeters across in some cases and you just think that would have taken you know a long time and in the church setting of course that itself is um you know a bit of a clue to what's going on because they must have been created a lot of this graffiti when the churches are open and that means kind of during service time or you know similar times to that because what we know again from the archaeology and from the documentary evidence is that you couldn't just a lot of the time you couldn't just walk into your local church anytime you liked it was locked so it was you know we actually have um you know documentary evidence where you have accounts of the church wardens complaining um to the vicar that would he ask everyone to leave promptly after the service so they can lock up because people are hanging around and gossiping so if the church is locked then you can only be creating the graffiti at a time when you've got access to the church. So it has to be, you know, during services or when there's, you know, some other events going on there. And that means there must be other people about. And that means, you know, this goes back to our original point. Well, if there's other people about and the church is covered in it, then it must have kind of been accepted and acceptable. Yeah, I know you said in the book that the church encouraged it to a degree because obviously there was that fine line between magic and religion and it, it overlapped quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. So it, it kind of worked yeah, in I'm their favour. Sure, I'm not even sure you can call it a line. It's a big grey area in the middle. You know, one of the things that we, um, you know, one of the things we've really come to realise is that um, most of our kind of ritual protection, um, which is a term, you know, that's a modern term in itself. It's only really been coined in the last few decades. Virtually all of our kind of ritual protection um, has got nothing really to do with um, what we might think of today in terms of, you know, magic as such. Um, a lot of it comes out of medieval religion. So a lot of it has its origins um, actually in medieval religion itself. And, um, you know, some people kind of find that quite difficult. And you, you kind of go, well, actually, you know, isn't medieval religion freaky enough for you? Um, you know, yeah, it, it, is, it is magic in its own right. It's just it may not be that kind of formalized scholarly terms of, you know, magic that you, you may want it to be. But a lot of this, you know, really is the magic of the medieval church. Yeah. Could you tell the listeners a little about the, um, you know, the three main types of ritualistic graffiti, you know, the compasses and the double V symbols? Yeah, and- I, I think um, we've kind of gone beyond three main types these days. Yeah. Um, what we can say is that if you're looking at our sort of pre-Reformation graffiti in a in a church setting, then approximately about a third of all the inscriptions we come across are um, exactly the same. They're all these kind of uh, ritual style protection marks. And what I mean by that is that these are, yeah, these are designed to um, be what we call apotropaic marks, uh, meaning to ward off evil. And, you know, that's, um, 
that's really sort of built on the foundation of the medieval church, as it were. Um, so the church was all about a lot of the everyday interactions people had with the church was about warding off evil, um, warding off demons. And so we come across these markings. Um, and the most common, I think, is the compass drawn design. Um, and these tend to be circular drawn with a compass. Um, one of the most common is known as um, a six petal rosette. Um, it resembles a kind of flower. Again, another modern term for it is kind of the flower of life. And that is derived directly from the uh, the cross. It's used as an alternative to the cross throughout lots of medieval art and architecture. And of course, you know, the cross is um, the most powerful of all kind of medieval apotropaic symbols. You know, the cross really is the ultimate ritual protection mark. Um, you know, if you think about it, it's used to ward off evil, it's used to drive out the devil. And so all of these marks kind of, they begin their life within the confines of the medieval church. And then as with all of these things, they evolve. And uh, particularly after the Reformation, so all this, um, you know, um, people um, like Eamon Duffy and have argued that, you know, the, the medieval church offered its own kind of counter magic to the, you know, to the evil that was all around us. And come the Reformation, a lot of that counter magic was kind of thrown out the window. Um, but people still needed something. So um, they, these same marks kind of carried on. And they carried on for centuries. I mean, right the way through into the 18th, 19th century. Um, there's a wonderful project that's been uh, going on over in Australia, which has been looking at um, these ritual marks uh, amongst, you know, emigre populations. They really continue well into the middle of the 19th century. You know, these traditions carry on. The question is whether they have the same meaning, of course. Um, you know, can you say that just mm. because this meant it was a cross in the 15th century, that when people are applying it in 19th century Australia, they're thinking, oh, this is an alternative and replacement to the cross. I don't think you can. Yeah. Um, you know, it just becomes a, well, I, I think the term has been used, a dumb symbol, a lucky symbol. So, yeah. what, you know, what might start yeah. out as having kind of magical connotations just carries on because it's like a tradition. You could almost use the term a superstition. You know, how many people still, um, you know, smash their eggshells after they've eaten a boiled egg? You know, it doesn't mean they still believe in witchcraft. Um, it just means that they've always smashed their eggs after they've had a hard-boiled egg. So with a lot of these things, there's kind of an evolution of belief over time. And, um, you know, we see that throughout our kind of ritual protection. But these marks, you know, the marks we get, um, we get these, you know, the compass drawn designs. We get what we call a, a pelter design, which is like a knotwork. Um, they're not really that common in the UK. But if you go over into places like Italy, um, probably not a good time to visit, but if you go over into places like Italy, um, you'll find that places like um, Siena Cathedral, the Dumo, are absolutely covered in these pelter designs. And again, it's an alternative or replacement to the cross, but um, you know they're absolutely covered. And so we do see slightly sort of regional variation in this. What does the VV one yeah, actually mean? Yeah, what does mean? the like, VV one mean? actually mean? That's a really, really good question. Um, <laughs> the VV one is, to put it bluntly, a complete pain in the bum. Um, because firstly, as I said, there is this confusion that goes on. Um, because the letter W is also written as a VV, um, a lot of people, whenever they see a letter W, they go, oh, it's a ritual protection mark, even when it's accompanied by other letters. You know, rule of thumb, if, um, you know, if, they, if you see two letters together, even if one is a VV marking, it's initials, okay? Um, okay, yeah. As I say, virtually all of our other marks come out of the church um they 
you can trace them back. You can trace them all the way back into the Middle Ages and beyond. And you can see how in many cases they evolved out of the Roman, which evolved out of the Greek, etc. The one fly in the ointment is the VV marking because it doesn't have this same direct lineage. There are several possible explanations. Um, One of them that's put forward a few years ago was that it stands for the term um, Virgo Virginium, um, uh, Mary as Queen of Heaven, and that doesn't really kind of stack up anymore. Um, The term Virgo Virginium doesn't really turn up a lot in the Middle Ages, and in particular, you know, it only really turns up in England. Um, You know, it's not a common phrase used in the medieval church throughout the continent, but the VV symbol kind of turns up all over the place. So this this whole interpretation of Virgo Virginium, we're not really happy with that anymore. Um, One of the other alternatives is that it might be, uh, it might stand for Walsingham, in Norfolk. Um, Walsingham was one of the main pilgrimage sites throughout most of the later Middle Ages. And um, we do see a lot of the pilgrim souvenirs that you get from Walsingham also have this VV marking on them. And locally, um, you, you actually find it in some of the architecture and some of the flint flush work. It's on, you know, it's in the formal decoration as well. So we'll see it in, um, you know, we'll see it in the um, stained glass. We'll see it carved on fonts. So, you know, there's a possibility that it, it may stand for um, Walsingham. There is also the possibility that it may have slightly earlier origins and it may be um, go back to the Scandinavian and even have a, a runic origin because these symbols um, were used, most of these symbols were used until very, very recently in um, the Baltic area where they were known as holy signs. So, um, you know, ritual protection marks, you know, a better term is actually, uh, you know, one I'm starting to use these days is holy signs because that's exactly what they were. And Amongst the uh, the Bal- in the Baltic region, this VV symbol is really, really very common, and it does appear to have its uh, its origins going all the way back into some of the, the runic, you know, um, pre-Christian uh, religious uh, ideas. But like most of this pre-Christian stuff, it soon gets adopted by the Christian Church. You know, the Christian Church was a, was a magpie; it grabbed anything it thought would work. Uh, and so the VV symbol, you know, it. Yeah. Is it Virgo Virginia? Probably not. Is it to do with Walsingham? Possibly. Is it has it got its origins in um, you know Scandinavian runic inscriptions? Just as possible. Is it a combination of all of these? Well, looking at the way um, you know we interpret other graffiti, um, yeah, it probably is. It's a combination because we know most of these symbols have more than one interpretation and one meaning. And you know, with the per- the perfect one for uh, the perfect example, I think is the pentangle because we've actually got really good written evidence for that. Um, You know, today the pentangle is kind of associated with witchcraft and black magic. Um, And a lot of people will be quite surprised to know that during the late Middle Ages, um, the pentangle is a Christian symbol. Um, and not just any old Christian symbol. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the most um, well important and common Christian symbols. Um, and the reason we know this is that we've got um, a written reference. And the written reference, I think I mentioned it in the book, it goes back to the story of Gawain and the Green Knight. Now, we have only one surviving manuscript of that, which dates to the, the late 14th century. Um, and it's um, by a guy called the Pearl Poet, uh, named after another famous poem he wrote. And he, uh, it's, it's a quest story. I won't go into it in too much detail. But um, when they talk about Gawain going off um, to search out the Green Knight, they, they go into quite a detailed explanation of you know um, what he's being equipped with. And they talk about his horse. Uh, they talk about his sword. Uh, they talk about his helmet. And then they come to his shield. 
And they say, so Gawain, on his shield, he had a scarlet shield, and on it was painted um, a bright gold pentangle. And the author then says, and now, you know, even though it's going to interrupt the flow of my story, I will explain the symbolism of the pentangle. And he does um, for about 20 lines or so. And he says the the pentangle, he says, it represents um, the five wounds of Christ. It represents the five virtues of the night. It represents the five um, fingers of uh, five fingers of uh, the hand, you know, given by God to do good deeds uh, and on and on and on. You know, and so he gives us a complete breakdown of the symbolism of the pentangle as it was seen in late 14th century Lancashire. And what's very, very clear from that is that it had multiple meanings. And if the pentangle has multiple meanings and can be read at all these different levels, then probably so can the rest of these holy signs, the rest of these ritual protection marks. You know, there is no one nice, clear answer. That's probably part of the fun as well, though, because I think it there's is. so many, you know, that there's nothing certain, but probably like doing a bit of detective work to see, you know, what what might match yeah. up. Well, we know with certain of these symbols, we can turn around and say, OK, um, say these compass drawn designs. We've got a lot of evidence now, um, pictorial, archaeological, documentary, which says that this this is just a replacement and occasional or you know, alternative to the cross. Other ones like the VV symbol, we have to turn around and say, first of all, most of the time when you see them, it's probably initials. And when it is being used in some form of holy sign, yeah, there are multiple interpretations. Probably not Virgo Virginium, but we have all these other possible interpretations. And because of the way um, you know symbolism works in the Middle Ages, it doesn't mean that there is just one interpretation or that people read into it just one thing. If the Pearl Poet can read all those different interpretations into the pentangle, then your average medieval Joe, when he's looking at you know one of these motifs, would have also understood that it worked at multiple different levels as well. And as you say, it's it's part of the fun and there's still a lot of research to be yeah. to be done. But you know, um, you know, there is no black and white as with most medieval religion. It's all kind of shades of grey. What about when it comes to the charms and the curses? Is that a bit of guesswork too, or is it? Or is that a little clearer? Uh, they're a little clearer because, um, first of all, we don't get too many charms and curses. But curses are kind of slightly more straightforward uh, because they all follow what we talk of as the classical pattern. You know, people are quite surprised by the idea of, uh, you know, our medieval churches and cathedrals being full of curses. But, you know, they've got to remember that the medieval church itself as an institution was really quite big into cursing. Um, you know, it, it, it liked its cursing. Um, you know, the, the great curse, as it was known, of course, is excommunication, um, you know, being cut off from the church itself. Mm. But, the, you know, the church, you know, had services itself, um, which talk about cursing. You know, once a year, you know, you would, you would have them. And the priests stand up there and, you know, curse be he who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. Curse be he who, you know, covets his neighbor's ass or whatever. Yet the medieval church liked a good curse. Um, and what we're seeing uh, in some places, particularly places like Norwich Cathedral, is that we are actually having the curses inscribed into the wall. And if you think about it, at its purest level, a curse is just kind of an anti-prayer. Um, you know, a prayer is meant to bring down good things upon an individual. A curse is meant to bring down bad things. Um, but these curses tend to take a particular form. And the form has been used all the way back to the Roman period. So you tend to have the name of the individual uh, that you want to curse. You then have whatever that curse is going to be. And a lot of the time, the text is either written backwards or inverted or you know, upside down or kind of gobbledygook. And then usually it's associated with an astrological symbol. 
So quite often the symbol for the moon. Um, so you're trying to bring down the baleful influences of the moon upon, you know, whichever individual it happens to be. So, you know, with the Roman ones, these are often then written on lead tablets, which are either folded up and cast into sort of sacred rivers or sacred wells. In some cases, they're nailed to uh, temples or nailed to sort of particular areas where, um, you know, they believe that it will sort of, you know, be effective. Um, And it's exactly the same with the medieval. You know, we're seeing um, the names, we're seeing the uh, upside down, backwards lettering, and we're seeing the astrological symbols. So it appears that in certain specific areas um, you know most of the time you can't argue that these things continue for thousands of years but in certain specific areas like cursing um, exactly the same practices are taking place for you know well over a thousand years have you ever found you know when you've seen a name of somebody cursed have you ever found them on a church record or anything um well the best one of course is the one in norwich cathedral um, which is written um, very, very neat hand. So whoever wrote it was uh, absolutely used to the writing arts. And, you know, it was very, very neat, clear. So they were probably a member of the cathedral community themselves. And it is, um, the, the curse itself um, is against one of the Caneford family. And the Caneford family were a prosperous Norwich merchant family. So they actually turn up as uh, correspondents in the Paston letters. And there's quite a lot of um, documentary um, you know, evidence to you know, indicate who they were. Um, and all I would say, you know, you know, whether the curse worked or not, but, you know, the family had died out by the 17th century. Really? <laughs> yeah. Maybe the I'm fear saying. of the curse might have... Well, interestingly... Yeah, there's lots of questions about that because this was in an area that wouldn't have been accessible to the general public, which also supports the idea that's been done by you know a member of the community, the cathedral community. And as I say, it was clearly done by someone who was literate and used to the writing arts. Now, the question, of course, is whether they were doing it on their own account or whether they were doing it on behalf of someone else. You know, were they being paid for it? That's true. You know, priests are um, certainly paid to carry out masses. They're paid to pray for people. Um, you get, you know, chantry priests who are, you know, just paid to, you know, carry out and pray for the departed, as it were. So, you know, are they also being paid to put these anti-prayers on the wall, these curses as well? Um, probably not something we'll ever answer, but it's certainly something we have to consider. Um, and when it came to, you know, crossing that boundary um, between, you know, Orthodox Church and what we'd talk about today as being kind of magic, then what the church, the records from the medieval church courts make really, really clear is that, um, well, priests are usually, um, you know, half the time it's the priests who are being accused of actually carrying out magic. So, um, you know, it's it's the priests who are crossing this line between um, the orthodox mm. and the heterodox, you know, the acceptable and the unacceptable. And a lot of the time they find themselves in court, not because they've done something um, deliberately wrong, as it were, but it's the church itself trying to decide whether what they have done crosses that boundary. And as I say, it's a, it's a fairly fluid, wide boundary. So, if you take the you know, the consecrated host, um, you know the the bread that's um, consecrated and used at the mass. Now, it's okay to um, reserve that host and be able to give it to someone for the priest to be able to give it to someone who is desperately ill. You know, obviously, um, you know during confession to you know get rid of their sins just in case they die. But then some people, of course, recover. Um, after being given you know, the last rites. And so it becomes associated with healing as well. So we find that parish priests are reserving the host and giving it to ill people. And that seems to be kind of accepted 
at a local level, it's accepted mm. within the church that the consecrated host can be used to cure people. Right. Where it crosses the boundary is if you then get people using the consecrated host to try and cure their cattle or their pigs or their sheep, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it's a boundary. But we're just not quite sure where it sits a lot of the time. You know, the medieval, the medieval church is a fairly weird and freaky institution at the best of times. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, this is why it always amuses me when people want to, you know, look back and say, oh, it must have kind of pagan origins or it must have magical origins. It's just like, isn't this freaky enough for you already? You know, um, they have some really strange ideas. You know, as well with these curses, I know the one you just described was kind of hidden away, but do they tend to be hidden or are they just out on in the open on the walls? Well, we say they're kind of, um, we say they're hidden away. They're not really. Mm. The problem, of course, is that all graffiti today um, is quite difficult to see. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, as I said, when I, you know, we went into Litchen Church, once you take a big light and you shine it obliquely across the surface, suddenly it lights up everything that's there. But you turn the light off and it's gone. And, you know, in some cases, that's why these inscriptions have survived, um, why they haven't been removed or they haven't been cleaned off over the last five, six centuries. Because unless you get the right lighting conditions, you literally can't see them. They are really difficult. Anyone who's been into a medieval church has probably walked past dozens of these and not known they were there. So they are really difficult to see. However, during the Middle Ages, that wouldn't have been the case. Um, in the Middle Ages, as you know, I said right at the start of the podcast, um, churches were absolutely covered in paint, absolutely covered in pigment. Mm. Now, you know, high up you had your sort of saints and your St. George's and your angels and your demons. But even the lower areas of the wall, the areas of the wall that you could get to, um, often they were painted in a, a flat pigment. And if you go to places like Western Longville Church, just outside Norwich in Norfolk, they've got a real damp problem there. And um, all those bottom parts of the wall, all the layers of pigment and lime wash and plaster are literally peeling away from the wall. It's what we call delamination. And you can count back all these different layers and all these different colours. And we've got red ochres, we've got orange ochres, we've got blacks, we've got yellows. And it's those areas of the church that would have had most of the graffiti in. And what they're doing is they are inscribing through this coloured pigment to reveal the, you know, the, the white or the pale stone beneath. So the graffiti inscription, far from being kind of hidden away and difficult to see, would have been absolutely right there in your face. It would have been white against the coloured surface. So, um, you know, this, all of these, you know, the curses, the prayers, all of it, when you walked into a medieval church and looked about you, you know, forget the stained glass, um, you know, forget your wall paintings up high, forget your wonderful carvings. All around you, the walls would have been an absolute mass of graffiti inscriptions right in your face. It's so funny because we've just got such a wrong image of it in our heads. We picture it how the churches are today and it would have just been, like you say, really colourful graffiti everywhere. People probably doing engravings into the wall. They were indeed. Um, There are a few places where you can still see it. Oddly enough, there's a there's a project I've just heard about, which has been going on down at um, Exeter Cathedral, where they've got graffiti underneath the medieval wall painting. We've also seen that at kind of Binham. But if you really want to see um, how this would have looked, um, you really need to go kind of uh, either to places like um, the Prior's Chapel up at Durham Cathedral, where there's a wonderful wall painting which is still covered in graffiti. Or even more impressive, um, go out to Italy and somewhere like Siena. I was I was there um, just before the virus hit in January and 
in the undercroft there they have um, a whole series of wonderful amazing romanesque wall paintings and these wall paintings were only visible for about 70 or 80 years before they actually closed this chapel up and it was closed up by the 14th century so any graffiti that's on those uh, and cut through those wall paintings has to date to kind of the pre-14th century and when you go and look it is absolutely covered in graffiti all of these wonderful, amazing wall paintings, if you get up close, you've got names, you've got um, knights on horseback, you've got heraldic graffiti, you've got compass drawn, you've got pelter designs all over the place. And yeah, this chapel was only open to the public for sort of 60 or 70 years. And in that time, yeah, they've absolutely covered it in graffiti. And it just stands out. You know, the first thing you notice, you aren't looking at the saints, you're realizing that all of the lower areas of this these wonderful, amazing wall paintings are covered in graffiti. And it's pretty clear that everyone, you know, no one had a problem with it back then because they're not painting over it. They're not covering it over. It's all there. And more interestingly, some of the graffiti is directly related to the wall paintings. So where you have a particular saint, you'll then have prayers to that saint written in the graffiti. So it's almost like these images were interactive. You know, t- today, yeah. all these places we go into, as you know, you found with sort of you know, some of the cathedrals, we're meant to kind of just look at them. Um, we're meant to go in and, you know, it's, it's a visual experience. During the Middle Ages, it was a much, much more kind of interactive experience. You know, you may not have been expected to leave graffiti, but certainly no one would object if you did. It's funny to imagine, you know, somebody writing a curse or something on the wall and you'd hope whoever they were writing about didn't show up because that would be, can you imagine the drama that probably went down if they saw that? Well, yeah, you say that, but we have got a few cases like that. Um, Oh, really? Well, Ashwell Church in Hertfordshire. Um, Ashwell is known as one of the great graffiti churches because it has just got such a wonderful mass of graffiti. What's really unusual about Ashwell is the amount of text that's there. Lots of, you know, we don't get that much text in general terms. Text normally accounts for only about sort of 5% of what we come across. All the rest is kind of imagery. But if you go to Ashwell, you've got all this Latin text and it's clearly been done by, again, someone used to the writing art, someone who knows Latin, so quite possibly another um, cleric. Now, one of these inscriptions, which is at eye level, um, literally translates as the archdeacon is an ass. <laughs> now, you think, okay, that's that's just someone having a bit of a pop at the archdeacon. And then you kind of think, well, actually, there's another level to this as well. Firstly, the general public who were coming in there, the general members of the congregation, wouldn't have been able to read it. They wouldn't have understood what it would have said. So it would have, um, someone would have had to interpret it for them. And also the fact that it was clearly done by a member of the educated classes or a cleric. Now, the one person, of course, who would have been able to read it and would have been able to fully understand what it said and would have had a pretty damn good clue about who wrote it would have been the archdeacon. So he he knew. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So very, very nicely directed insult. You know, I wouldn't say finding such things is commonplace. um, But yeah, we do get it occasionally. Um, If you're going to insult them, do it to their face. (laughs) Yeah. Have you got a favourite piece of graffiti you found, or is there's probably so much you've seen? Probably. Uh, yeah. It's 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 always difficult, and I always choose something different because people always ask me, "Oh, what's your favourite bit of graffiti?" Yeah. Um, the the appalling St George and the Dragon from Marsham is a bit of a favourite, and I mean yeah. that 
it, it ended up being used as an ex in an exhibition in Cambridge uh, at the Fitzwilliam Museum, and it was kind of it, it was one of those moments when you go along to a big major museum and you're looking at an exhibition, and there's a piece of graffiti in there that you discovered, and that's kind of that's when it kind of strikes you. Think actually, you know, this has become a thing now. Um, you know, this is the Pandora's box we have opened here. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of one of my favourites. But there's kind of there's too many to choose from. I think personal there's a kind of a personal connection to certain bits of graffiti because of that moment of discovery um and because they tell you something different about a place so the one thing that the one place that's always been quite special to me is Binham Priory up in North Norfolk and this wasn't actually kind of technically a piece of graffiti that I discovered but it was in the very earliest days of the survey and while looking there I shining the light across the walls I realized that there was a very large architectural inscription literally the kind of working drawings done by a medieval master mason and the inscription there related to um, a now lost window um, in the the west front and this particular window was revolution. Um, it was the first example of bar tracery ever used in England. Um, it predated Westminster Abbey by about you know at least a decade. So it, the window had always been known to be kind of incredibly important. But to find the architectural inscription, you know, the, the working drawings for this was just kind of absolutely special. But then I looked at the architectural drawings and I realised the master mason hadn't got a clue what he was doing. He was using those drawings. Um, they were his working drawings. He was working out from first principles. Um, this new type of Gothic ar architecture with pointed arches clearly wasn't something he was used to doing. And someone had told him what it's meant to look like, but I don't think he'd ever seen it for himself. So he's using the walls as his sketch pad. And every mistake he'd made was on there. Um, every you know every mistake every cock up every change of mind it was all still there and it was just there were moments when you kind of noticed and think, ah look you screwed up on this bit as well or look um, compass point isn't just the wrong point and you that was the moment when you could almost feel him leaning over your shoulder breathing down your neck saying yeah but we all make mistakes yeah yeah as for the projects i know like it's a lot sort of focused in the norfolk area do you think you'd ever expand it and go further afield or? oh we, we expanded years ago um oh you have it, you yeah, have we, already we, we started out in norfolk back in uh well, it's about a decade ago now and we started yeah. working with um, some of our kind of local archaeological groups and societies, in particular people like the Waveney uh, Community Archaeology Group, um, who sit down on the border between Norfolk and Suffolk. So um, we couldn't really tell them only stay one side of the river. So the Norfolk survey became the Norfolk and Suffolk survey. And then because of all the publicity that we were getting and the fact that this, as I say, this just kind of hit the zeitgeist, it just expanded out to other counties mm. so we've had other surveys kind of sister surveys have been set up uh, and we now have surveys in uh kent sussex uh wiltshire uh nottinghamshire derbyshire um down into devon and cornwall uh, north yorkshire so it's kind of it's spread all over the place um even you know into rutland and leicestershire and everywhere else so at the moment i think we're covering about half the counties in the uk um now these aren't you know, these aren't me. These are other groups that have set up. Um, so some are, um, some are run by professional archaeologists. Um, all of them are kind of volunteer-based. Some are run by local archaeology groups. Other ones run by kind of local museums. But it's 
it's spread just across, you know, people just been so enthused by this and there's so much out there to find that it's spread across the country, you know, if you'll excuse the phrase, you know, quicker than a virus. Um, it's, it's like a plague out there. And, you know, there's more people all the time just going out and looking in their local churches. Um, there's a Facebook group, um, uh, English Medieval Graffiti, with thousands of members in there. There's various Twitter feeds. Um, it's become, you know, um, a real kind of a, a real thing and a big community. Um, a big community it doesn't always get on with each other but it's a big community no i'll have a look on the facebook it sounds really fun to get involved with this actually it is fun um this this is the wonderful thing about this is that anyone can do it with minimal training Um, this is kind of you know what we describe it as real archaeology by real people and it's always been strongly supported by people like um well um, people like the national trust and the council of british archaeology um they've always really been strongly behind this because simply because it's about empowering people so with a minimum of training um and all you need is a light um and a camera you know you can go out and start exploring your own churches and finding stuff that people have have never seen before um completely new discoveries and you know everyone from um school children and students to you know uh pensioners and retirees can literally go out into a medieval church and discover something of national importance. Chances are they'll discover initials, um, but, you know, there's always that chance and you never know what you're going to find. You know, I've always argued that archaeology is always about people. Um, It just so happens that some of them are dead. Um, (laughs) You know, the the important people involved in archaeology are the live ones as well. It's how we interpret it and how we interact with our past. And graffiti is that great medium. You know, it brings buildings, it brings spaces alive. It gives them, um, you know, new power. Uh, it gives them, you know, um, it gives people new motivations as well. And at a time when we have declining church numbers and we have, um, you know, massive, um, you know, potential problems with revenue and repairs, getting anyone out into our wonderful medieval churches has to be a positive thing. Even if they're there, you know, to, um, you know, look at the stained glass or, you know, hunt for the graffiti, um, getting people out to appreciate these amazing structures um you know and the people who built them prayed in them died in them and what they meant to those communities you know that's got to be a positive yeah no absolutely it has I think we'll finish off, but, you know, where can people find you online? And Where can people? Um, all over the place, usually. Um, the, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, the Twitter feed is um, at Medieval G. Um, and then we have the, um, the English, medieval, uh, English Medieval Graffiti Facebook group, um, which I say is uh, fairly busy, fairly popular, a couple of thousand people in there as well. Um, or they can just um, check out the um, the soon-to-be-updated websites for the Norfolk Medieval Graffiti Survey, which is just www.medieval-graffiti.co.uk. That's why I didn't realise you'd expanded, because I, I looked at the site and it said uh, Norfolk, and obviously the book was quite focused on that. So that's yeah. really great to hear that you got it. Oh, it's uh, we're 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 like a rash. Um, <laughs> you'll never get rid of us now. Spreading everywhere. Yeah. Thanks for chatting with me today. It's been really good. I really appreciate your time as well. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm always happy, as anyone will tell you. I'm always happy to run on for hours about medieval graffiti. So thank you for inviting <laughs> me. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you like the sound of all that, don't forget to check Matt out on website or socials and also I highly recommend his book that I read because he does go into a lot more depth with other areas of graffiti that he's found for example gets into 
merchant marks, mass dolls, birds and fish and ships and I mean there's heaps. We just covered a couple today so you know if you want to find out more about the different types well worth a read. For anything else Sense of Place podcast related please head over to senseofplacepod.com. Ratings and reviews always appreciated. Other than that that's all from me and I'll speak to you again soon.